listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. Church, if you have a Bible or a smart device with you, I encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 1 right now. Colossians 1 is about seven-eighths of the way through the Bible, if you're new to the Bible and math-minded. If you are not math-minded, I'd encourage you to use that table of contents. It's a, it's a great help for you. If you're not math-minded or reading-minded, maybe just listen. I don't know how to help you more than that. But Colossians 1 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue uh, to, to understand how the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything for us. As you're turning there, I'll tell you a story of um, uh, a, a partnership I used to be a part of at a former church that I worked at. Uh, we were connected with a ministry in Kenya. And it wasn't just Kenya. It was one of the most remote places in the world I've ever been to. It took a little over two days to get there. And we were helping a, a people, a tribe called the Maasai tribe, settle. Their government circumstances were forcing them to go from a, a semi-nomadic people group to a settled group. And for thousands of years, they've been nomadic and they didn't have settling skills. So we were partnered with missionaries who were helping us help them. But the relationship was definitely reciprocal because we couldn't have been much more different as cultures in the world, yet we were celebrating the same God. We were worshiping the same God. So every year when we got to go visit our friends and our church family in Orkarkar, Kenya, they were teaching us every bit as much as we were teaching them. Sometimes the missionaries would include special ways that we could bless the church there. And something that they told us we could do from time to time was a vision clinic. You see, they lived so far out there. They didn't have eye doctors. They didn't have optometrists and, and, and lens crafters. Instead, if you lost your sight, you had to learn to live without sight. So we trained some people within our church to be able to do these, these very basic optometry classes to, to implement when we went there. And we, we compiled all these glasses. And people would come in, and they would have to read the charts. And because we were separated by language, instead of letters on the eye charts, uh, they would use cows and goats pointing in different directions. And they'd help people navigate the, the vision test. And by the end of it, you, you'd get a, a basic idea of what the prescription might be if they had a vision impairment. And then something amazing happened. They'd find that pair of glasses that, that matched their impairment. And you'd see people that, that for years, maybe for decades, weren't able to see clearly, would put on glasses. And then you'd just see this beaming smile. They could see for the first time. My favorite group of people to watch, it was always the grandmas in the community. I mean, these people would walk miles, or in Kenyan, kilometers. They would walk kilometers to come in to get their eyes checked with the hopes to be able to see. And these grandmas who had weathered feet would start singing and sometimes dancing because they were able to see. And that was one of my favorite moments because I was reminded of, of how much room us American Christians have to grow when it comes to practicing gratitude when God's given us a gift. When they were able to have a new focus and a clear vision, it literally changed the world for them. They related to God differently in worship. They were able to walk through day-to-day -day life with greater confidence because they could see. 
and they were able to relate to others differently because they could see through lens that was helping them through their impairment. Church, for our lives to be changed by the gospel, we need a new focus. We need a lens through which we can see the world. If you are a person who never thinks about your faith in day-to-day life, whether you're a Christian, whether you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian, I would say you're probably living a nearsighted life. You can only see what's going on in front of you. You can only see your circumstances. And if things are going well, your life is good. And if things are going poorly, your life is bad. That's a nearsighted perspective in life. But then there's, there's another type of person, predominantly a Christian, who can only think of, of a future hope way out in the distance. They can think of their heavenly home, but they don't know how Christianity infiltrates their everyday life. And that, I would say, is a farsighted person. And the challenge with whether you're nearsighted or farsighted, and, and all of us are at times, is that those are both forms of blindness. The good news is Jesus gives sight to the blind. But for our lives to be changed by the gospel message, we need to look at the world through the lens of Jesus Christ who becomes our new focus. Sin, the attitude and actions that separate us from God, the curse that leaves us always thirsty and never satisfied, this blinding presence in our lives leaves us unable to see and we need help. It's all rooted in self-focus too. That's exactly what blinds us. But as one pastor friend of mine puts it, our problem isn't that we're treasure hunters. Our problem is that we're hunting down the wrong treasure. We need a new focus in life. Last week, we explained how the Apostle Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus, and it changed everything for him. And it became contagious toward other people. This man who went from the greatest adversary of the church became one of its greatest champions And he wanted to see that the church understood the gospel doesn't only save us, it transforms us, it changes us. See, God meets us where we are, but he loves us far too much to allow us to stay that way. So when we meet the resurrected Jesus, he wants to change every dimension of our lives. How does that happen? Everything hinges on the question, who is Jesus? And Paul tells us we need Christ to be able to grow into maturity. And then he goes on to answer this question, who is Jesus? And he does it in these next verses beginning in 15. In fact, in verses 15 to 20, a lot of Bible scholars, people who devote their life to understanding the context of the Bible and communicating it, tell us that verses 15 to 20 of Colossians 1 is probably a hymn, a spiritual song that the, the young churches that were forming would sing to remind themselves of who Jesus is. And Paul, the apostle, the champion of the church, is using this song to remind them of Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. The first thing that the Apostle Paul tells us to answer the question, who is Jesus? And the answer is Jesus is God. Listen to that verbiage in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. 
Paul is saying that Jesus is the exact representation of God for the whole world to see. He's not a new version of God. He's not God 2.0. He is the perfect representation of the God that they had been exposed to before. See, sometimes we get in our minds that there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, and the, the Old Testament God is pretty severe, and the New Testament God is Jesus, and we kind of like Jesus. We believe Jesus' skin color looks kind of like our skin color, regardless of what your skin color is. We, we believe he probably has a similar eye color to us. We believe Jesus gets up and, and probably feathers his hair a little bit every morning because all the pictures of him, he has perfect hair. And we believe he's, he's, he's the nice version of God. But God the Father is kind of the mean version of God. See, you know, we run the risk of supplanting God when we dictate to God who he is rather than allowing God to dictate to us who he is. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God did not change. God does not change. God will not change. Jesus is the perfect representation of the God of the Old Testament Everything Jesus does honors God the Father. Jesus is God. What else do we learn in verse 15? Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. If this is the first time you're interacting with that text, you probably come to a screeching halt. You might think to yourself, wait a minute, does, does Jesus come after God the Father? Like, did he come into the picture later? What's this firstborn language? Firstborn of all creation. Well, as I told you, this is a hymn. This is a spiritual song. There's some poetic language being used here. And it's not about the, the idea of Jesus being born. It's using the language that Jesus is the beginning of the beginning. Calling him the firstborn of creation is about status, not about him actually being born. You're like, Gabe, that might be a little bit of a reach. How can we know that? Well, I'm glad you asked. If I ask most of you, have you ever seen a beautiful sunrise or a sunset? And if you think about that, and you're like, yeah, I've done that. I've seen a beautiful sunrise. So, stop. No, you haven't. We learned a long time ago that the sun is actually standing still, and we are both rotating and revolving. So you have actually never seen the sunrise or sunset, but you have felt the earth move. It misses the point. You're getting the right thing wrong when you answer that way. When we have this poetic language, he's the firstborn of all creation. We're being reminded that Jesus is the beginning of the beginning. Jesus is the beginning of the beginning. Think of that first verse in Genesis 1-1, the very first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what are we now told about Jesus? In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus is the beginning of the beginning. And then the kicker comes in verses 16 and 17, all things were created by him, through him, and for him, and he holds all things together. He sustains them. All things are created by him, through him, and for him, which means Jesus is the architect, the builder, and the owner of the house. And the house for Jesus is the entire cosmos. All things are created by him. That means they were in his mind. It was his plan. It was not someone else's. All things are created through him. There was no Cosmos creation kit that he ordered and put it together himself. He spoke these things into existence, and they were. All things were created by him, through him, and why? For 
him. Like I said, he's the architect. It's his design. He's the builder. He didn't go out and order supplies. He created them. And it all exists for him to fill with his presence. This is important for us to understand because two of the greatest questions most people around the world wonder at some point in their life is, do I matter and what is my purpose? Do I matter? Do I have value? And what is my purpose? What am I here for? And the Apostle Paul tells us that in relation to Jesus, you absolutely matter because you were made by God and through God and God doesn't waste anything or anyone. Secondly, you do have a purpose. You were created for him. So every breath in your lungs, every moment you have the opportunity to wake up and live, your occupation, your season of life, your trials, your testimony, the time that you spend throughout your life is all to be devoted for God. In fact, for us to live our best life means we're living as instruments, not as the conductor of the story. We exist with matter and with purpose. So who is Jesus? First and foremost, he is God. And Paul goes on to tell us, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The second thing we learn is that Jesus is supreme and sufficient. In verse 18, we're told that, that Jesus is the head of the body. There's a couple of meanings for this. One, it's like he's the, the leader of the organization. He's the, the, the chief of the people group. Uh, but there's also this imagery that he is the physical head of a physical body, which is a, a, an image that Paul uses to tell us about the church in all of his letters. Regardless of whether we see him as the leader of an organization or the head of a, of a physical body, both cases show us that Jesus sets the direction, which is good news for us because we've just learned that Jesus is the author and authority of life and living. So him being our direction setter is good news for us. He is trustworthy. Verse 18 goes on to say, he is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's first place in everything. Again, we see the status of Jesus. Jesus was the beginning of creation, and he's the firstborn from the dead, which means he's the beginning of recreation, new creation as well. Look at the mirrored verses. If you look at 15 to 17, next to 18 to 20, listen to how similar they are. The firstborn of all creation in verse 15. In verse 18, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. In verse 15, it also says, he's the image of the invisible God. But in verse 19, it says, it was the Father's good pleasure for all his fullness to dwell in him. In verse 17, it says, Jesus is before all things. In verse 18, it says, he is the head or the beginning, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. In verse 16, we're told, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. And in verse 20, it's mirrored through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Jesus' supremacy comes before the resurrection. Jesus' supremacy comes after the resurrection. 
Jesus is supreme in all things. Jesus was there at the beginning to create all things. And through Jesus' resurrection, he is there at the beginning of God making all things new. The beautiful thing about the identity of Christ is that it points back to Genesis at the beginning of everything. But Jesus also points forward to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, where God is giving us a picture of him making all things new. So the whole arc of the story of the scriptures flows through Jesus. The whole story of humanity has to go through Jesus. Past, present, and future hinges on Jesus' supremacy. He is above all things. While Jesus created everything by his words in the beginning, he will create all things or make all things new by his death and resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the first of what's to come for all of us. In this, we see Jesus created everything by his words. He is reconciling everything through his resurrection. Reconciling is an important word when we see it in scriptures. I've talked to you about this before. To reconcile something, uh, there's two ways for us to think of it. The first is with a bank account. Imagine you've got your deposits and your withdrawals. And God has invested something in you through a deposit. He's made it a deposit in you based on your worth being created in his image. And because of sin, we've made an epic withdrawal. We have written a check that we can't cash. We can't afford it. And the consequences of sin, we're told, is death. But God has reconciled us. How? It says through blood, through a cross. Which means God has corrected our ledger. His grace is sufficient for us. He doesn't just give us enough to make up for our sins. He actually overwhelms our bank account with his grace in order that we can be made right with him. So to reconcile is to correct our account. We went from bankrupt to heirs with Christ, the king. Secondly, to reconcile means to mend brokenness. There was a brokenness between us and God. It was as though a fabric was torn. And through the, the blood and the death of Jesus Christ, that fabric has been restored. The sweet thing about that is it's never to be broken again. Jesus has reconciled everything through his blood, through the cross. And while Jesus is supreme above all things, Jesus is a sufficient sacrifice for our sin. Anytime we see that word blood, it beckons back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament law told us that, that because of sin, there had to be blood offerings made over and over again. And they couldn't just pick an animal that was like ready to die. They had to pick a perfect young animal that had a bright, vibrant life to be lived. And these sacrifices would cause people to lose something and they would often be messy. But blood had to be shed for blood. And Jesus' blood sacrifice was the offering to end all offerings, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, because now a man was dying for mankind. Now, finally, the righteous one is dying for the unrighteous one, and his sacrifice is sufficient. There would be no more sacrifices needed because of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul in verse 20 also points to the cross, which always reminds us of death. 
While Jesus is superior and above all things and better than all things and preeminent and first in all things, he has chosen to identify with us in the most personal, deepest ways through experiencing shame and pain and death. So we go back to those questions. Do you matter? You better believe you matter because you were created by God and through God And he shed blood. He paid a tremendous price to redeem you, to reconcile you back to him. And the second question we ask is, do you have a purpose? Absolutely you do. Once you are made one of his, it is your responsibility to help hold up a lens for other people to see the world through Jesus. It is your responsibility to be the lens through which others can see Jesus. This is why we say the mission of this church, the focus of our church is bringing God's story to life. How can we be the lens through which others can be, see Jesus? Uh, when I think about this, I, I think about a new fascination for me. I have a fascination with cardinals, the birds. Ironically, uh, for, for for years, I, I was born and raised in West Virginia. The state bird is a cardinal. And when I lived there, I could not have cared less about cardinals. Um, but for over the last two or three years, any time I see one of these gorgeous birds, I just lock in. And if I'm with my family, they have to lock in with me because I point to the cardinal and I tell them all the things about the cardinal. And if it's a male cardinal in bright, fiery red, you better believe I'm going to talk about it for a while. In fact, look, kids, look. Do you see how red it is even though it's in the shadows? Do you see its beak? Do you see how it flies? And this is new to them. So recently I'm pretty sure they think dad's gone bonkers. But yesterday, literally yesterday, I was running errands with my young son Rocco. And in the middle of a task, he says, dad, look, look at that pretty bird. And I look at where he points. And it was the littlest, ugliest, dirtiest bird. <laughs> and and I, I sifted out that thought of telling him why that bird didn't matter. And I got emotional because my son is starting to change his affections. He's starting to view the world through the lens of his father. And he found beauty in something that he didn't find beauty in before. That's what it means to hold up the lens of Christ for others to see. We have opportunities in our day-to-day lives to point to Jesus, to show his beauty, to tell of his greatness in order that others begin to thirst for him. How do we do that with Jesus and not just birds? I'll tell you a more important story. About a year ago, a family member of mine had just gotten engaged while we were at a family event, uh, he and I got into a conversation. I promise it happened naturally. I didn't do anything weird pastor maneuvering. We got into a conversation about love and marriage. And I asked him, he's not a professing believer. I asked him, how do you think marriage love is, is different than the rest of love in life? And he said, well, uh, I, I really think when you're ready to marry someone, you're both ready to make a 50-50 commitment so that you can work together and love each other, and that's the only way it's going to work. 
I was like, man, that's a, that's a great starting point. That's a, that's a great thing to build on. With, with the experience that I've had, I've, I'd encourage you to go even further than that. And for a marriage to work, I, I think it's, it's got to take two people who are giving 100%, not 50%. Because there are times that, that both of you are going to fail. And you need to make sure that you're committed to the greater good of the other person, not just committed to, to you feeling satisfied. He was like, wow, I think I'm going to use that. <laughs> Never once did I quote a book of the Bible or, or a chapter or a verse. But if you were listening in on our conversation, you would have heard Ephesians 5 all over it. If you could have smelled our conversation, it smelled like cigar smoke and Jesus because of what we were doing. <laughs> and then a few weeks later, he, he asked me, it was actually kind of awkward, he asked me in front of the whole family, hey, would you officiate our wedding? And, and I followed up with him. I was like, man, that is such an honor that you've given me. Uh, but let me give you an out. <laughs> I only know how to officiate Christian weddings. And this is what that looks like. And he, his fiance, he and his fiance talked about it, and they were like, yeah, we want you to do it. I said, okay, I'm not cheap, but I'm frugal. Let me offer you the best gift that I can offer you. I will offer you premarital counseling on your way to getting married. Because I don't just want you to get ready for your wedding day. I want you to get ready for your marriage. You can take it or leave it. It's up to you. And they talked about it, and they were like, yeah, we would love to do that. So over the course of four sessions, the first three, we talked about life and living. We talked about marriage. We talked about identity. We talked about relationships. Sometimes we talked about Jesus by name, using passages of Scripture. Other times we talked about him in the content of what matters in relationships. But it was oozing Jesus. And then in our fourth session, we were ordering the service together. And I, I, I read to them Ephesians 5 and said, I'm, I'm going to read these as the declaration of intent for a husband and a wife and for a wife for their husband. Is that okay with you? And they were like, absolutely. This is kind of what we've been talking about the whole time. And the bride's one request was, could you make God sort of the center of our service? I was like, yeah, I can do that. We hold up the lens so others can see Christ. And I, I would love to tell you that through that experience that they took all the steps and they wanted to trust Jesus and they're sold out and they're not there yet and I'm still praying and I will show up every time God gives me an opportunity to nudge that forward. And every day, each and every one of us have opportunities like that in the home, in the workplace, in our neighborhoods to be the lens through which others see Jesus Christ. Is that how you're living? Jesus was sent into this world to be the image of God so that the world could know him. The church is sent into this world so that the world would know the identity of Jesus. It is our responsibility to hold up the lens in order that others can see the world through Christ. And you've heard it said before, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I tell you, but you can feed them salt. Jesus himself said we're to be salt and light. He called us to, to speak words that preserve life, that season our conversations. And that is what we can give people so that they're thirsting for Christ. But it depends that on us holding up the lens through which they view the world.
be the lens through which others can see Jesus until they're ready to see him on their own. And don't stop after they do because we continue to need each other. Who is Jesus? He is God. He is supreme and sufficient. And he's also our greatest hope. Listen to these last couple of verses. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds expressed in your your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from this hope of the gospel that you have heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Our greatest hope is Jesus. Jesus changes everything because of who he is and what he's done. Consider this. The devil knows your name and he calls you by your sins. And God knows your sins, and he has called you by your name. That is because of the work of Jesus Christ, our great hope. So what? Earlier, I referenced the sunrise. There was a point in history when everyone thought the sun came up and went down. But then, We got more knowledge. We had more of the ability to see. And when we were able to see the universe more clearly, something changed. We realized that we rotate and revolve. We're the ones moving, not the sun. So our perspective changed. When you go through the everyday stuff of life and realize that you were created for Jesus, but you have not allowed him to be supreme, start surrendering those things to him and turning away from them and toward Christ. Each of us can do that. Each of us has dimensions of life where Jesus does not reign supreme. But when we grow in knowledge that we have not surrendered those areas of our life to Christ, just like people have done throughout history and surrendered to the fact that the earth is moving around the sun, not the other way around, your life will begin to revolve around Jesus rather than asking Jesus, the supreme God of all creation, to revolve around you. And secondly, as I said before, be the lens through which others see Jesus until they can see him on their own. There is a familiar hymn. I promise I'm not going to sing it. Uh, but but I, I want to make a change. Many of you have heard the words, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will look strangely dim. Let's change that. I think it sounds better this way. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will look strangely clear in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray that we can be people who see Jesus clearly and it changes everything for us and that we can be people who hold the lens through which others can view Christ until they're ready to have their blindness corrected by him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, that you would love us in the midst of our sin is awe-inspiring. Lord, I I pray that you would increase our affections for who you are, 
so that when we look at your son through your word and his supremacy and the sacrifice that he was willing to make, will you stir our affections for you? God, will you help us to see the world clearly through the lens of Christ? And will you help us hold up that lens for others? God, we believe that you give sight to the blind. We ask that you would give us spiritual sight to overcome our spiritual blindness. Help us to find dimensions of our life that we have not allowed you to remain supreme and help us to turn away from our way and towards yours in order that we can see you as supreme and sufficient in our ultimate hope. And God, as you transform our lives, we pray that you give us the courage and the power to hold up that lens for others. God, we pray that you give us a new focus in the powerful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen.